The Minor Constellations Podcast. Conversations with engaged thinkers and doers. I'm Kathleen Sampson. And I'm Yair And we're doctoral fellows at the research training group Minor Cosmopolitanisms, which hosts this podcast. In this episode, we talk to Elad Maoz, a PhD candidate in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Chicago. We started with the events that took place in Israel-Palestine last May. We talk about the arrests, police and policing, vigilante law, and even some thoughts about the current project of the left. Hi, Elat. Uh, we're very happy to have you here in the Minor Constellations podcast. And I think we met some years ago, right, in the Impasses of Critique uh, workshop uh, that was organized by the Van Leer Institute and the Minerva Humanities Center in Tel Aviv. Um, so we kind of know already also from, from the time that I was working in Sadaka Reut and some activist circles um, in Israel. And um, in light of the current events uh, taking place in Israel-Palestine, we wanted to give it a, some special attention and then to focus not only in what happens again and again in Gaza, but also on the way the ceasefire looks like and what continues to exist that maybe get less attention, or at least outside of Israel, less attention. And we wanted to kind of talk about this continuity of the state of affairs and, and, and the situ- situation at the moment there. And we thought that talking to you will be a very good idea because of your last book that was published in 2020, that in Hebrew is titled Chok Chai, Shitur B'Ribonut Tachat Kibush, or in the tentative English um, title is called Living Law, uh, about the struggle over sovereignty as it appears uh, in the failure of law enforcement in the West Bank, the Israeli police, Mishteret Israel. We wanted to hear your perspective on the current events, but specifically from the lens of police and policing. And maybe you can start by introducing a bit your book, the way you think about police and policing in the West Bank, and then how it unfolds uh, differently in Israel. Okay, well, thank you very, very much for the invitation. I'm also very excited to speak to you. I'm always interested in having these kinds of cross-geographical um, conversations, um, especially when they're, uh, they don't pass through the usual uh, metropolitan centers of past and present empires. So I'm very excited to have this conversation. I'll start by maybe saying something about the book. Um, you said that it's a book on policing and law enforcement in the occupied territories in the West Bank, which is true. But it needs to come with a caveat because the book is actually mostly about um, the policing and non-policing of settlers or policing by settlers. Mm -hmm. So as opposed to many other works on policing and law enforcement that are um, constantly published, especially today, but are also part of like the bread and butter of critical theory and sociology and anthropology of policing, they usually deal with how the state enforces a legal regime upon uh, marginalized groups, excluded groups, um, the exploited, and so on, racialized groups. What this book does is actually look at a very peculiar situation in which the state um, is struggling to police and struggling not to police or has a 
has conflicts around questions of how to enforce the law on a community of people who are effectively um, themselves what I call elements of living law or petty sovereigns. Um, because what is a settler? A settler is very concretely speaking, a marker of Jewish sovereignty in a contested territory. Mm -hmm. And what he is there to do and to achieve is basically create a claim, a legal claim or a physical claim um, for, for Jewish sovereignty over uh, an occupied territory. So what happens when the state as an establishment of law that supposedly has monopoly over the legitimate use of force uh, encounters that group of people? The book is, is, um, is trying to, on the one hand, uh, offer a kind of genealogy of the formation of the settler in Israeli society, because of course, on the one hand, Israeli was, Israel was always a settler colonial society from the start, but mm -hmm. this group called the settlers, right, that are associated with settling in the West Bank is a fairly new phenomenon, right? It only really begins to emerge in the 1970s. And I trace that emergence in relation to changing modalities of organizing violence on the frontier from a, from a fairly monopolized form of frontier organization that characterized Israel um, in the first few decades of its establishment to a much more uh, heterogeneous, much more cunning, in fact, modality of organizing violence that is also, that, that on the one hand has to do with the way that Israel had to uh, negotiate new obligations imposed on it by international law, right? Israel of 1948 and Israel in 1967 are um, are subject to different kinds of international legal regimes. So the state has less less space to maneuver uh, in terms of what it can and can't do. And um, secondly, how the new organization of violence also uh, reflects uh, transformations in social organization that have to do with with the rise of what is called neoliberalism, right? Or, you know, the renewed urge to accumulate after the crisis of capital in the 70s. So that's kind of what the book does. And it traces the, the what I call border conflicts between the police and the settlers as two kinds of manifestations or embodiment of the sovereign prerogative over violence, right? Um, how does this relate to what we're seeing in Israel today? Settlers in the occupied territories, that's one of the arguments of the book, function as quasi-policemen, right? In relation to the Palestinian on the ground, they are basically policemen or soldiers, um, or even worse, because, you know, they they are excessively committed to the state building project, right? They complement the state. And part of their ideology is precisely to uh, reinforce and complement the state where it appears to be lacking, right? Where it appears to be constrained by various kinds of external obligations or its own legal establishment. Settlers are, are basically these kinds of vigilante policemen Right. And what we saw in the recent 
um, troubles in Israel, it's very hard to, to actually say what, what it was. Was it a war? Was it an internal turmoil? Was it an assault? Was it, it was all of these things and more probably. But what we saw is how the techniques of uh, violence developed in the settlements uh, were imported into Israel um, with with great vigor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so maybe you could um, uh, talk a little bit more about the background on the ways in which this was, as you say, vigorously imported to Israel over the last years. Well, maybe it's just worth saying to make this even more concrete that since two thousand and six, uh, after mm-hmm. Israel. Um, dismantled some of its settlements in the Gaza Strip in what is called the disengagement plan, the settlers um, decided or understood that if they don't create new tactics um, for what they call settling in the hearts of the Israeli society, then they will find themselves um, marginalized and losing political power. So what they started to do around that time was to settle inside what we call in Israel mixed cities, which are actually Palestinian towns that the majority of the population was removed um, or ex- expelled actually d- during the 1948 Nakba. Uh, Israeli Jews were brought to settle there. And these are generally poorer municipalities with, with, with many, many um, socioeconomic problems. So the settlers came to settle in these uh, towns in order to what they call Judaize them, basically take over um, take over space in the same way that they do in the occupied territories, and that created a lot of the problems that we see what that we saw um, in in mid May when settlement groups that already live in these towns were reinforced by loads and loads of buses coming from West Bank settlements in order to assert uh, their power in these locations by attacking Palestinians under police coverage and protection. So you mentioned that um, the police protects settlers. And if I want to zoom out, Um, from this concrete example to understand the way you think about policing and uh, the state, would it be right to say that you think following Derrida maybe about police are the state, police as the state? I mean, maybe, maybe one way to put it very, um, very simply is to say that Um, when we're thinking about police, when critical theory is thinking about police, when the, the question of police is, is understood through the lens of sovereignty, then um, it's, it's common to, to claim that the police are the, the manifest embodiment of, of, of sovereign power, right? Of sovereign prerogative. Because that's how... You know, we as, as citizens, as civilians, experience the law as power, right? And um, in the same way or in an analogous way, we can say that for Palestinians, all settlers, all Jews embody a kind of policing function. Right. And Jews in Israel as well understand themselves increasingly as kind of petty sovereigns, as kind of vigilante law enforcers. 
Right. Um, and if to use your terminology, so for the um, Palestinian, the settler is the embodied sovereign. Um, but there is another layer in the question of, of, of crime that interests me. And that is that from the one side, um, from the one side, Palestinians constantly uh, protest against the fact that there is no policing on their behalf while they are constantly being policed and criminalized. So maybe can you, can you say something about, uh, uh, about how that unfolds or that paradox? Um, well, Palestinians inside Israel, like um, exploited and racialized populations pretty much everywhere in the world today, are constantly complaining about being policed as enemies rather than as citizens. Right. And what they mean by that is that the state uses the police in order to enforce a racialized, unequal form of order, right? without actually providing them with police services to protect their security and safety. Exactly. And inside Israel over the past decade, even less simultaneously with actually economic development in Arab localities and other social transformations, there has been a significant rise in, in organized crimes in, in actually um, just gang activity. Um, mostly around extortion, but also around um, financial services that are catering to a population where only about 20% of the people have, have bank accounts. And even those who have bank accounts often don't receive loans from, from official banks. Mm -hmm. So gangs uh, enter these kinds of gaps of, of governance that um, exists in various types of, of margins of state and, and economy uh, and profits um, on them. And, that, and, and obviously because they operate on the margins of legality, then contracts are only enforced um, with violence. And the proliferation of small arms in Israel as many, and in many other places in the world is a very, very serious problem because there's just too many guns on the streets. Um, and that it, and it creates um, very very difficult situations. So yeah, so the people are crying out for weapons to be taken out, removed from their um, localities. Mm -hmm. um, something that uh, the state has been exceptionally sluggish to do, um, and might be actually doing now, where all of a sudden these guns were risking to turn against. Um, Jews, which actually didn't happen uh, and probably will not happen for reasons we, we might want to get into at some point. But, but the issue is, again, that the state constantly exhibits how it's very, very quick and efficient in enforcing order and far less efficient in enforcing law, especially um, when it comes to marginalized communities. Um, so, so maybe jumping into a different context for a moment, just to understand, because, you know, I'm coming from South Africa and there is a particular understanding of the specter of crime. But um, I'm wondering, what do you talk about when you're talking about crime in Israel? What's the specter, so to say? Generally speaking, crime, what is called crime in Israel, has historically not been particularly 
uh, rampant. I mean, uh, generally speaking, if you are a Jew in Israel, but even as a Palestinian citizen of Israel, you 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 generally don't experience the kind of personal insecurity, problems of personal safety, say walking down the street, as you would in a place like South Africa or right. context that I'm more familiar with, and like the Caribbean. So, but 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 to kind of return to your to your more general question of how to locate ordinary criminal crime, say <laughs> ordinary criminal offenses in relation to uh, what, what what is known as security offenses or offenses against the state or things like that, let's not pretend that we can draw very 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 clear boundaries between them because there aren't. Right. Uh, and the categories get often mixed. Um, both in the way that the state enforces the law, but also in the way that people understand what they themselves are doing. The v- various ideologies and discourses that legitimize um, breaking the law or rather enforcing it. But I, but I think that um, certainly in Israel today and uh, in many other parts of the world, it's clear that when we're talking about... Um, crime, we're, we're no longer talking really about the small street criminal. Where crime exists, really, uh, or it becomes a problem for communities, it's in places where crime is highly organized and perpetrated by people who are quite powerful um, and is supported by various kinds of vested interests, which can be state security agencies in the case of Israel, right? So Palestinians inside Israel will often blame the Shin Bet, which is the secret police, so to speak, in knowing a lot about crime and actually using it in order to recruit collaborators. Um, and, and, and for crime to be organized, of course, it has to be, it has to take root inside the institutional structures of the state. Um, and an organized crime is strong today. It's everywhere rooted and it uses the state in various capacities, both for protection and also importantly for for laundering assets, right? So so I think that you know it's it's certainly time for the left to think about or to think about crime in taking full account of the fact that it's perpetrated from above, you know, by basically people with power to kind of complement uh, decades of thinking about crime as a kind of social construction right. o- only in relation to the criminalization of the, of the marginalized and impoverished. Right, because it's not just a social construction or a paranoia, it's a thing that exists. Yeah, it's not just paranoia. Crime is a, crime is, is a real harm and a real problem. It's not just a social construction in the sense that it's not an, a fantasy or a moral panic or an imagination. Uh, it's also used, I mean, when when criminality is imputed upon the lower classes, of course, it's used in, in various ways to perpetrate these kinds of moral panics. But crime is also very much a problem among poor, impoverished communities, racialized communities, uh, and and has been used also systematically as a way to to depoliticize communities. So it's not a mere coincidence that in the aftermath of the greatest black rebellions in the United States in the late 60s and early 70s, crime, we can say, was sown into these communities. Uh, And a lot of gangs that were political became criminalized 
probably through the intervention of the state. And basically, crime was used as, as one of the ways in which um, political participation, especially uh, radical political participation, was subdued. Um, and Palestinians in Israel would say similar things about the effects of crime on their communities. And of course, there's a kind of dialectical relationship or a cycle that is formed here because uh, the more a community becomes depoliticized, the more people will turn to kind of form of opportunistic crime and vice versa. Thinking about policing today is, is maybe a way to consider the kind of incipient political project that we need let's say, in the aftermath of the nation state or when all nation states, almost without exception, albeit in, in different ways, are failing. Would you, say that, um, would you say that most people in Israel think that the state is failing? And if so, would, will they deploy this concept in the way that you do? I, I don't know I don't know if there are people who currently feel in Israel that they are very well governed. Um, I, I think that COVID-19 um, certainly broke um, the illusion that Israel is had of the state functioning, even though it, ultimately Israel was one of the you know one of the first you know the pioneering right. vaccinating <laughs> states and so on and that was very very effective. So, you know, Israel is not uh, collapsing. Things are sort of functioning. But uh, I don't know, have you, tr- have you experienced uh, travel in Israel in recent years? I mean, the situation on the roads is, is impossible. Mm-hmm. Like, there's just congestion from north to south every day. Yes. Um, there, there, a state budget has not been approved For over two years that means that there is no real there's no real possibility to to use to finance any 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 state program so i don't think that people currently feel that the state is very well governed <laughs> i think a lot of people believe that once the political crisis quote unquote will be solved and right. then things will will become better but um it's hard to say we have to be very sensitive about using state failure and specifying what it means because there's a specific kind of state failure discourse that is actually perpetrated by the right. It might be true for other contexts, but in Israel it's very, very clear um, the, the new prime minister, Naftali Bennett, and his party, one of their, um, probably their, their number one slogan is that there's no mishilut, mm-hmm. no, uh, no adequate governance. So they're, they're reproducing a kind of paranoia around uh, state insufficiency and state failure that creates this, what I call this vigilante or, or sovereign desire to supplement the state where it can't achieve its goals for various reasons, right? Where it's, where it's supposedly failing. So, um, so when settlers came into mixed cities, Uh, in early May in order to enforce the law against Palestinians, they were doing this in response to these kinds of discourses that blame the state and the security forces and the police for not doing their job, not being able to enforce order properly or as much as we would want um, and, and so on. So, so I think 
Um, from right and left, uh, there is a kind of consensus that states are failing or a certain kind of dissatisfaction with the state. But whereas the right seeks to complement and augment the failing state um, by by taking by being by being even um, say more violent, excessively sovereign, more you know, uh, taking on like create, becoming this kind of uh, vigilante hyperstate. Yeah. Uh, I think for the left, the project is to rethink um, governance and governmentality as an autonomous practice where the state no longer provides us with the means to to bring about our collective aspirations. So now, how do we think about, how does thinking about policing help us move into a new political kind of project or imaginary? Well, one way is to observe, obviously, that policing is a global regime of governance that is multiscalar. That is to say, it operates on a global level. It also operates on the state level of through the state, but it also operates in very, very, in many, many different kinds of local contexts through exceptionally localized actors, including um, more or less legitimate, say, gangs. Mm-hmm. And then, so we have this governance structure, which, which in, in general terms can be called a global police structure because it's by definition governing in an anti-political fashion. That is to say, through a principle of, of heteronomy rather than autonomy. Uh, through a principle of, of imposing the law rather than a community generating it. So if we want to turn this global governance policing structure into a political structure, a democratic one, then this is where to, this is how we begin to think. What does it mean to create governance structures that are democratic across these different scales? And that includes um, how we organize collective violence, but also how we organize many other kinds of services across these different scales. Mm-hmm. So, so in in the wake of a failing a failing you know post colonial state project, I think maybe that's one avenue of of thinking through policing about. Um, politics to come. Can you tell us a little bit about what brought you to police to begin with or why, you know, what's useful for you in thinking about policing? A lot of my, a lot of my um, interest in policing comes precisely from the fact that I think it provides us with a very, very complicated uh, dilemmas because it exposes sites of contradiction that are objective contradictions in the social structures, but of course have subjective manifestations in the form of ideologies, including the ideologies of policemen. Mm-hmm. And you know, my my ethnographic fieldwork for my dissertation was partly conducted in the Jamaica Constabulary Force, which is a very interesting organization because it's. Uh, it's not only that the majority of, of policemen serving in it are phenotypically black, uh, like the, the majority of the population of Jamaica, but also it's a police organization that has a very interesting historical relationship both to colonialism but also to anti-colonial uh, struggles. So some of the policemen in this force would say, you know what, we are black power warriors and for us, you know, part of what we do is that we we, we fight against crime, which is a neo-colonial imposition mm. 
uh, on our state and our ability to govern. For example, the fact that they also participate in death squads that end up or that pursue actually um, killings of, of, of young black men in the service of businessmen and oligarchs is, is, also part of, is also part of the story. But what I'm trying to illustrate here through the small example is that policing is a set of contradictions and the subjective contradictions that policemen inhabit uh, can teach us a lot about the kinds of contradictions that exist in our social structure and, and highlight them in, in ways and also remove us a little bit from, from, from the, the favorite position of the left, which is a purist position exactly. where, you know, all violence is bad. Every, you know, every, every kind of positive action is, is basically at the end of the day, some kind of like uh, horrible um, enforcement of, 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 or normalization and discipline. And to say, okay, like there, there is more complexity in reality than a question. It's, it's not just a story of, of, of heroes and villains. Exactly. Um, but, but in fact, a much more um, complicated situation where we're all located in positions of, of subjective contradiction and, and we all have to, we all constantly devise ideologies in order to live with these contradictions uh, and continue thinking about ourselves as moral human beings, which is not easy <laughs> under advanced capitalism. <laughs> um, but but in, in the case of policemen, it's, it's very obvious, but, but if we look at policemen, we actually very easily see the position of, of the subject in, in under capitalism was torn um, between um, moral duties and, and the need to survive in the system. I love your analysis and I want to, it reminds me of something that you said earlier when we were preparing about counter-policing and educating the state. Can you maybe say something about that? Uh, in terms of the, of the concept of counter-policing, it can mean different things, but I guess what I'm trying to say with it, and probably it's not the right concept, is to say, okay, wait, communities do want security. They do need to protect themselves. Uh, they have they have the right to protect themselves from certain ki- different kinds of predatory activities that are perpetrated often from above. So I'm trying to create a distinction between communities seeking to defend themselves um, and vigilante actions by 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 the powerful. So because it's it, it would be easy, and I think it's often conflated in say anthropological literature all different kinds of, say, vigilantism or taking the law into one's hands or enforcing one's own idea of, of legality are often conflated and put into one basket as if when, as if it's exactly the same thing when settlers do it and Palestinians do it, right? When, when colonizers do it and when the colonized do it. Like, it's not the same. <laughs> um, and I think that we need to develop uh, much finer distinctions um, that are both political and theoretical to to make the case that these are not um, equivalent activities uh, and should not be treated in the same way. Again, I think that this idea is is sort of just flipping what the state and particularly the neoliberal state or the disciplinary state is constantly doing, right? Especially vis-a-vis 
uh, excluded, marginalized communities, criminalized communities, racialized communities, right, that are constantly being preached to and educated and sent to various programs or they're supposed to finally become civilized um, in ways, you know, the kind of reproduction of the civilizing mission is, is, is stunning, you know, we're in 2021 and they don't cease to educate the people as if the people need to be educated. I mean, the people know very well uh, who perpetrates crime and exactly. they know yeah. very well uh, that uh, sometimes people have to engage in illegal activity in order to survive but they also have moral sentiments and moral values there is no need to educate them um, to the contrary I think that it's that what I'm saying we have to educate the state I, I, I mean precisely that we have to allow the, or that we have to insist, rather, that the forms of knowledge um, that exist amongst popular classes finally um, uh, penetrate uh, the seemingly impenetrable uh, establishment. Exactly. P- perhaps as a first step to say something like, before um, you, before you come and and and. Uh, uh, and, and enforce the law heavily in the most compromised communities and sectors, start enforcing the law upon the rich. Um, when I say that crime is, is more, of a, more of a moral term than a descriptive term, I mean precisely this. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about crime, we're, not, we're, we're, we're making a political claim, right? We're making a, a claim about who should be, who is the culprit? Who should, who should, who should we blame? quote unquote. Mm-hmm. We need what, mm-hmm. what the French uh, called uh, high policing, which is the policing of, of collusion, of conspiracy, of oligarchy. That's what we need. And, and even if you talk to the, the, the wiser policemen in some parts of the world where uh, corruption discourse is prevalent, will tell you mm-hmm. um, we need a very, very different kind of police forces today. And there are reasons why these police forces that will actually protect the people from some forms of elite predation are not being created. Right. Um, so, so I think, you know, we have something positive to say about policing. There are forms of policing that we want. Police the rich, police the elites. Then come, then after that, after you're done with that, <laughs> go follow maybe the petty criminals on the street corner. Not before. <laughs> So is this is this maybe what you see as something like a project for the left today, or or is it something else like rebuilding the state, or I don't know, social movements, or is it something else? Well, I don't think that the project of the left is rebuilding the state. I think that's precisely where this where the kind of leftist thinking that I am trying to I don't know promote would be too much because it's very preliminary thoughts that I have on this matter, but I don't think that our response um, to globalization and the neoliberalism should be a kind of left uh, populism. So it's not about recreating the state, it's not about recreating the welfare state, it's not about recreating the glorious um, white, uh, white working class of, you know, national labor or anything of that sort. Um, in that sense, you know, I don't think that the Bernie Sanders program is, or the Jeremy Corbyn program 
or any of these programs that not surprisingly come from the centers of imperial power. Uh, that's not the kind of project that I think is a leftist project for today. I think the pro a project for the left is not so much to rethink and recreate the state as much as to create governance or governmentality across different scales where they already operate but are just not democratic. Right. Yeah. I think that at the moment the left can't offer very much because the left is in, in, has fallen completely in love with the <laughs> idea of resistance at all costs and has forgotten um, or has re basically resigned any uh, claim to ever govern anyone, including itself. Um, so, so right now, I don't know if the state, if the if the left can offer very much. Although, you know, there are there are people are starting to think about it. I think recently, um, COVID changed a lot um, in terms of uh, people starting to reconsider, you know, autonomous uh, governing structures on the level of their neighborhood or their town or so on, and 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 maybe. Um, and maybe out of that, um, interesting things in terms of theory and practice will come about. I would say, though, that one of the more um, exciting or, or inspiring um, developments that I saw um, in, uh, in the Palestinian movement inside Israel in, in, in May um, was, was, a, was a kind of transition on the level of discourse from resistance and anger which were obviously also there, um, to a kind of more, um, let us say, Fanonian um, type of, of, of creative or, of, or cultural regenerative nationalism. And here nationalism, I don't mean in any kind of racial or ethnic sense, but in the sense of uh, a movement coming from the people for, um, to create uh, a life that they want to live, right? Mm -hmm. And so you, 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 it was kind of um, incipiently evident among young protesters, at least in Haifa, where, where I live, that people are talking about, you know, we want to create a different lives for ourselves. And for us, Palestine is not just this kind of abstract territory or space, but it is a place where we want to create a different kind, a different kind of living, mm. a different way of life that is, um, you know, in, 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 in all different ways, in, in everyday ways against colonialism, which means, uh, which can mean, you know, practices like, you know, I have one friend who is really into um, recreating kind of Palestinian agriculture um, turning a fairly abstract discourse about our relationship to the land into something very practical, right? Of growing food, regaining a kind of knowledge that has been lost when people are talking about, yeah, we have to defend the land, but they don't remember how to sow and how to, re how to grow anything in it because they are basically not agriculturalists right. um, mm -hmm. for decades um, because of colonialism, but also because of other reasons. So, um, so you know, and, and linking that obviously with, um, with 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 broader attempts or with other kinds of attempts to build more sustainable lifestyle, um, 
so so when I look at those kinds of experiments, um, um, I'm, I'm inspired and excited. Thank you, Elad. It's been so inspiring listening to you and having you really open our thoughts. Thank you for joining us. To listeners, do check out our website for more information, links and references. You can find us at minor.hypotheses.org forward slash podcast. 